Welcome to The Books We Loved, a podcast through the Troy Public Library. Today we are talking about retellings that are not quite retellings, sort of a telling it slant, homage, adaptation, reimagining. We're going to be talking about all of the retellings today. So the people in the room today, we have Manda, of course. Hello. And we have Marielle, a returning guest from Youth Services. Hi. And let's just jump right in. So Marielle, you picked this topic. So would you give us a little info about why it interests you and what it is? Yeah, I recently read um, Elizabeth Hand's Haunting on the Hill, uh, which is the quote-unquote first authorized return to Hill House of the Shirley Jackson universe. I'm still not quite sure who authorized that return. Likely her estate, but seems weird still because that's like what it says on the sticker everywhere. It's, <laughs> they're very intense about it. But what I've always enjoyed about retellings, you know, I think some of them try to go very straight ahead on things and some of them don't. And I much prefer the ones that don't. I think it gives a really interesting opportunity to re-examine a story um, or a really, you know, especially a very famous work, if it's something older, um, you know, from a new angle or give it a more unique framing that kind of changes our understanding of it from like, a modern perspective or whether it's, you know, kind of reframing that older perspective if it's something that's decades or even centuries old. And this one was one that I was really excited for. I think did a lot of interesting things um, and I think there's a lot to talk about with it. So that's kind of why I brought this. So do we want to jump right into talking about the books that we brought? Why don't you just tell us a little bit about it? Haunting on the Hill is Elizabeth Hand's kind of, like I said, return to Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, um, which is kind of like, you know, the blueprint for American haunted house stories. It's kind of the story where nothing happens until it does and kind of the whole vibe of Hill House. The original is Anxiety House Wants to Eat You and then it does. And, you know, there's been film adaptations, there's a million books and stories that are very clearly inspired by, you know, you get a lot of the same symbology popping up in new people's horror. I've read at least like three YA novels recently that uh, mention stone lions, which are a very big thing in Hill House and, you know, that kind of creeping dread in the house. Um, I'm not a gore person. I'm very much a person who enjoys that creeping dread of nothing happening until it does. So Hill House is one of my favorites. And Haunting on the Hill, uh, I think, is a really interesting conceit because it returns to this house in this particular universe um, in upstate New York. And it is a brand new story. It does not uh, have any of the same characters because it is taking place in modern times rather than the 50s. But it does, you know, reference, you know, for those of you who have read Hill House, you know, the biggest thing, sorry, spoiler alert, is that the main character, uh, Eleanor, who the house desperate to keep for its own, kind of, eventually kind of loses her mind and crashes into a tree stump. Um, And so one of the first really main markers of, oh, we're really back in Hill House, is that when these new characters get to Hill House, there is this big tree stump of this tree that was cut down that multiple people had crashed into over the years. So you get this very atmospheric and referential start. The thing that was really interesting to me about this one is that I don't know that it would have worked as well without the context of Hill House. Like as a haunted house story on its own, I thought it was kind of mediocre. 
truthfully. Um, and it's interesting because I did see a lot of people like on Goodreads and, you know, reviews talk like who hadn't read Hill House saying that they thought it was such a great book. Mm-hmm. And I think it like it can stand on its own if you don't know Hill House and Shirley Jackson. But like I, I feel like if I had just read it, not knowing anything about Hill House, I would have thought it was a pretty mediocre haunted horse. Ha- not a haunted horse, a haunted house. <laughs> that would be cool. Though, I would too. get behind I, haunted horse books. 100%. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was interesting because atmospherically, I think Elizabeth Hand did a really good job of portraying the the pull of Hill House that really works itself on the original characters. She does this really well with these new characters without, you know, over-explaining. And she kind of sidesteps the most obvious references, which I also thought was pretty impressive because I think a lot of times with straight-up retellings or the non-retelling retellings, people still will go for those really obvious references in a way that makes it too heavy-handed. So for a good, like, 75% of this one, I was really impressed. And I have to say the end was disappointing. Yeah, so that's really interesting. It makes me think about those stories where you have to wonder whether or not the author wanted to, went in thinking, I'm going to write a Shirley Jackson homage, or if they were thinking, I want to write a haunted house story. You can't get away from that Shirley Jackson story if you're going to write a haunted house story. So I might as well just sort of reference it. And I, I think about that, those sort of those things that loom so large in our culture that you want to write a story about it, but you're, you feel like that other story is just going to hover over it no matter what. So you might as well just acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. So this brings up that Margot Livesey article that I mentioned that it's called writing in the shadow of a masterpiece on homage and it's in lit hub. And she goes through and talks about all of these different types of retellings as she sees it and I'm just going to kind of go through them real quick and then we can talk about whether or not this fits in with those um, categories so the first one is an unmistakable retelling from the beginning she mentions Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres and you go into the book knowing it's going to be a retelling of King Lear it's a frame-by-frame retelling all of the scenes are exact one-to-one and it usually she said that nearly always involves uh, some kind of critique of the original story and that's the new original content that's being created with the retelling then she talks about a gradual retelling she talks about the story of Edgar Sawtell as a reenactment of Hamlet, but you don't know that it's going to be Hamlet right away. That was exactly what I was thinking of. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then as you go, you're like, oh, I'm, this is familiar to me. And I guess with that one, you would have to trust that the reader would, it has to be something that the reader would recognize or that most readers would recognize. A slant-wise retelling, it begins and ends in the same general place, but the middle is really a total departure, just its own story. Um, and then she talks about retellings from other points of view, like Jean Rice's Wild Sargasso Sea, which is a prequel to Jane Eyre told through Mrs. Rochester's point of view. And then she writes about this, which I thought was really interesting, which was a retelling that works within the original story. It plays with the original narrative, but it also acknowledges the life of the author, like The Hours by Michael Cunningham, which is sort of Mrs. Dalloway, but it's also Virginia Woolf's story. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. So those are all the all of the different ones that she talks about. And then she 
mentions it's a really great article she talks about poetry and visual art too so you can see these sort of updated versions of these classic paintings that people have done Mm -hmm. which Um, was really interesting have you ever seen when libraries do a project I think it's with teens usually where they go and get I think it's probably just like the Dollar Tree or Goodwill thank you Goodwill where they go and get paintings old paintings and big frames mm-hmm. and then they have people add on to them maybe make that. it like yeah the zombies oh, or whatever alien invasion yeah that's kind of to me sort of in that vein of you're taking something you're just adding on moving forward yeah and she also writes about Jerry Bergstein who provided eight reasons why someone might attempt a retelling of a classic story the first is to provide a contemporary update of older themes that often contradicts the original two is sheer love of the original three is to make a cultural critique Four is to demonstrate political or other forms of social evolution. Five is to distill the earlier work. Six, to develop the traditions of a beloved forebear. Seven, any combination of the above. And eight, as a joke. So what do you think about that, Marielle? How does that relate to your story that you brought today? Yeah, The most ungenerous part of me thinks that there's also one more thing on that list, which is just pure arrogance. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that that's what Elizabeth Hand was doing. Sorry, Elizabeth. I See, I know nothing about Elizabeth Hand. Apparently, she is a very good horror writer. Mm-hmm. I have never read any of her other stuff. This was the first time I'd heard about her. But, you know, whether or not it starts out as just like, you know, a pure love of this thing or not, I think sometimes people will look at something and say, wow, I could really do something with that. Mm-hmm. And I... I feel like with this uh, retelling, it wasn't really offering any of those things. It was more just, I love Hill House, and I want to go back there with these characters that I have. But there was also a lot of other aspects to this book, like these characters are, um, they're doing a play. And so there was this theater device that was, really interesting that they come to Hill House to work on this play and the main character is obsessed with the idea of using Hill House to rehearse. She just stumbles upon it one day while she's driving through upstate New York and it could have been really, really cool, but it started to kind of spread out in too many branches and too many fingers and it was like she almost forgot that she was supposed to be doing this Hill House retelling unless you want to look at it like you know hill house itself is really the only character here and these other people are just happen to be coming into this space and something happens to them that it's less about the characters and it is about the house itself which in some way turns on its head the original because yes you know the haunting of hill house is um extremely much sorry, this is not eloquent (laughs) happening um, about the house, but it's also very much this like intense character study and especially of Eleanor, where I feel like there was in this one, this kind of overworked attempt at making the house the character and having this character study of these characters, except they're all terrible and less sympathetic than I would say the original characters are and done in a way where it's just a little bit too obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I compare this with like the, um, 
that new show from the guy that did that other Haunting of Hill House retelling that was barely a retelling and I refused to watch because he just used the names and didn't really do anything. But his new show, Follow the House of Usher, on Netflix is a really interesting version of a retelling where he takes Edgar Allan Poe and takes the story, The Fall of the House of Usher, uses that as an overarching framing device. And then throughout each episode of the show, it's like these different amalgams of Poe retellings from different Mm. stories that fall kind of under this fall of the house of usher so it is like this complete homage to poe and just you know a silly fun horror very gory very melodramatic but done in such a way that feels like true to the spirit of poe i came away from it with genuine questions and new thoughts about you know how we can tell the modern gothic in a way that i did not come away from um a haunting on the hill with Mm. Yeah, I think there's also the danger of something taking itself too seriously when it's trying to redo a classic. Absolutely. Because part of the, it's inherently funny to see something that all of you recognize in the movie theater together. It's something culturally that we share sort of um, presented again, but made a little strange. That's funny. Like it's funny to redo stuff that we already Mm -hmm. know. So I like when there's a little bit of silliness to it when it doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah, and Usher was very much that way where it was it's very obvious in many ways and it's one of those things too where I do think it can stand on its own if you're not as familiar with Poe you know I am a librarian and a former English major so Mm -hmm. I'm like yes I know all of the references like you know what's going to happen in the Mask of the Red Death episode you know what's going to happen in the Black Cat episode and the Telltale Heart one and it's if you know Poe and these stories you see the titles of the episodes and you're like oh, this is so fun. Like, I know what's coming and I can't wait to see how they do this. Yeah, yeah. But that my anticipation parents, too. My parents watched it and they're not as familiar with Poe and they still really enjoyed it and could still get that sense of the modern Gothic in a fun way. And they did it in a way that to this, this you know, family, it was like this big criticism of big pharma in modern times. So it's, mm. it genuinely can stand on its own in a way that I don't think this book have, so she's earnest. Didn't live way. up to my expectations. She tried really hard. She I think did. we can all agree that the best adaptation of that story ever was the Disney Channel movie Smart House. <laughs> have neither of you seen it? No. Okay, no. so it's, I know about it, but <laughs> S Club Wait. Seven features in the soundtrack. <laughs> it's about a boy Is that and a, a girl. Cartoon? No, it's a live action boy <laughs> and a girl live in a house. Their mother either died or left. I'm guessing she died. This was like when I was a kid, so there wasn't that much divorce. Oh, he's an orphan. <laughs> yeah, their yeah. their mom died, and so their dad provided them with like what most houses probably are now, like mm-hmm. these Alexa mansions. But it was like a at the time, it was amazing. You could tell like the oven to make you a pop tart or whatever, and it mm-hmm. would. Mm-hmm. And the voice was this sort of Siri like mom I mean, voice. I, I want to move in this house haunted. Or well. No? You better not, because after a while, like, when you try to move out, the your creepy Alexa stepmom is going to not let you leave because she needs you to be I mean, there. does she pay the bills, though, so I don't she have sure to does. work And there's, scenario. like, a little Star Trek <laughs> thing in the counter where, like, if you ask for hot cocoa, a little thing slides to the side, and then hot cocoa comes up from I mean, underneath. Mm-hmm. This doesn't sound like a horror film to me. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like retirement dreams. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of Monster House. 
Did uh, you see Monster House? It was a cartoon film. that came out in like 2006. Amazing movie. I don't know why I watched that. I think I had to watch it at one of my old libraries with the kids. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. Like the house at one point tries to eat the one kid. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is a lot for a kid. It's a great movie. Um, we are going on to something very different, right, Amanda? Mm, indeed. Shakespeare. Hidden. In teen movies. The best. Yes. It is really the best. And I feel like if you were super nerdy and you knew Shakespeare in high school, you would pick up on which stories these were. You'd be like, God, this feels really familiar. But for a lot of kids, they did not realize how many of their um, fun, nerdy teen movies were based on actual things. So I'm just going to start with my movie retellings list before I go back to my actual. So some movie retellings in my research that came up. So I'm going to talk about 10 Things I Hate About You, which is sort of a modern retelling of Taming of the Shrew. Um, My Fair Lady. Also, She's All That, our loose... Pygmalion. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the man with was Twelfth Night. Oh, a lot yes. of Shakespeare. A lot of Shakespeare. Bridget Jones's diary was Pride and Prejudice. Clueless is Emma. So we see some um, Jane Austen. The Lion King. Yeah, Any guesses? Yeah. Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah. 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 A lot of people don't know that. Oh, brother, where art thou? Is the Odyssey. Yes. Oh, Maleficent best. is Sleeping Beauty. That's a newer one. I think more people are familiar with because it's Disney. And Oliver and Company came to mind because it's Oliver Twist. Okay. And it's a terrible movie if you watch it now. No. I (laughs) rewatched it. It's awful. Also I loved a lot of opinions today that I just I loved it when I was a kid, but I rewatched it during COVID and I was like, this is this shouldn't have been made. But the highlight (laughs) of that movie is Billy Joel doing the soundtrack. Let's be honest. Go Billy Joel. Um so Let's talk about 10 Things I Hate About You. Gosh. I remember going to see this in theaters. When did this come out? 98 or 99? Let's look it up. Please. I did not do my full research, obviously. (laughs) I know I was either a senior in high school or freshman in college. I think it was 99. I definitely went with my friend. I was five. And I was really embarrassed. Shut up. Shut up, Mario. (laughs) I was really embarrassed to tell my dad it was 99. (laughs) Okay. So this came out my first year of college. So the plot loosely is Cat, who is played by Julia Stiles, 1990s Maven. Loved her. In kids' uh, teen films. She plays the smart, beautiful older sister. She's tough. She's sarcastic. And I love the montage where they show the scene where this one guy is asking all these other guys at the high school if they would date her. And they all, like, laugh or scream or, you know, everyone's very terrified of her. She's very abrasive. She's wonderfully smart and... Um, I love her character. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. Um, she is so like anti high school drama. Then you have her younger sister, Bianca. And Bianca wants to start dating, but their dad, who um, I cannot think of the actor's name, but he's fabulous. He also plays the hairdresser in um, Princess Diaries. He's a dad. So the dad is played by Larry Mar- Larry Miller, not Larry Martin, <laughs> no matter how I try and use the name Martin today. Larry Miller, and he's fantastic. He is a doctor, and he gives him this whole speech about what happens to teen girls. They get pregnant. People do drugs. People get sucked into cults. Anyway, younger <laughs> sister Bianca wants to start dating. Um, so the dad decides to compromise and he says, when the older sister cat starts dating, Bianca can date because he knows that cat will not date any of these heathen 
boys in high school because she's so above it and over it. But jokes on him because Bianca, um, there's a guy that likes Bianca named Cameron. And even though she likes this other guy, she convinces Cameron to help her find a guy to date her sister. Cue hottie pants Heath Ledger. My and giant 1999 crush. Baby Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, before Cameron he got into territory in the, in the late 2010s. This was still 1999. Did you say tweed? Twee. Twee. Tweet. She's like thinking like 500 tweet. Days of Summer. But before that, he was in like weird thriller, horror, indie stuff. No, yeah, I'm thinking it's Tweety Bird. Anyway, <laughs> so um, how does this relate to Taming of the Shrew, which is kind of um, 10 Things I Hate About You as a loose retelling of Taming of the Shrew. So Taming of the Shrew came out in the 1590s. 10 Things I Hate About You came out in 1999. So hundreds of years later. The plot of this is uh, Lucencio loves Bianca, but he cannot court her. Court meaning old school word for date, get with, hang with, see, do adult stuff with. He can't, oh. he can't court her until her whole older sister, Catherine, um, Ka- I'm sorry, Katharina, um, a.k.a. the shrew, gets married. So the eccentric Petruchio comes along, marries her, and then uses all these really upsetting kind of cruel tactics to get her to be this obedient wife. He starves her. He likes starves her of sleep, which kind of leads me to retellings. Yeah. And I think it was on your list. It's a way to make a story more contemporary, right? Because we know that Shakespeare's fun to watch. It's still kind of funny if you can get past the language. But, you know, stuff that was funny hundreds of years ago, like, you know, being pretty much abusive to your spouse, not letting them eat or sleep to get them to be obedient to you. We know that's not okay nowadays. Feels weird now. That's why we take this old story, which has some good bones to it, and we kind of recreate it. We restuff the couch. Yeah. With new slight plot changes. And I feel like when they do that, especially with Shakespeare, it makes it more accessible to kids, mm-hmm. teenagers. That's who I'm thinking of in particular. So fantastic. Some shout outs to Shakespeare, though. Thing, things that I like in retellings is when you, if you're smart enough to know the original, you pick up on like the little, the little... Easter eggs. Mm. Ah, I couldn't think of the word. So some of the Easter eggs from 10 Things I Hate About You. So shout outs to Shakespeare. Um, So obviously their names are Kat and Bianca from Katerina and Bianca in the original. Their last name is Stratford. I don't know if you ever caught that. Stratford upon Avon is where Shakespeare was born and where he is buried, uh, where he was buried. Um, Heath Ledger's character is Patrick. The last name is Verona, which is a location in... um, some of his plays. It's like so obvious. Um, right. Cat <laughs> is referred to in the movie as a shrew. And they use the expression taming a couple times. So, I mean, that's like a really obvious shout out. The high school name is Padua, which is the play is <laughs> right. set there in Italy. Cat's uh, uh-huh. BFF Mandela has this huge gross crush on Shakespeare. And I her prom it. date dresses like him, which I thought was so nerdy and adorable. <laughs> Cameron, the first time he sees Bianca, directly quotes Taming of the Shrew. He says, I burn, I pine, I perish. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Patrick, which is Heath Ledger's character, asks Cameron if he will help him, quote, tame the beast. 
an obvious nod to the play. So a lot of very like smack you over the head Shakespeare references in that. Um, Going back to your list, I was thinking about it as you were reading through. Obviously, like I said, it takes a popular story and makes it more contemporary. It gives us some modern values. Um, I also like, and this is not so much in 10 Things I Hate About You, but one of the things I feel like they maybe they left off or maybe it was referenced on the list and I didn't catch it was when they take a familiar story and they flip it on its head by making mm-hmm. someone that's a hero um, the villain in the retelling or vice yeah. versa. Um, so you didn't get that so much in this one, but that's something I keep looking for as I watch retelling. So, so that's 10 things I hate about you. That's really good. The best retelling, it was either this or Clueless. And I I love this one so much more than Clueless, but Clueless is retelling of Emma. It makes me wonder why they do that with Shakespeare. I mean, other Mm -hmm. than their familiar plot lines that most kids would, you know, sort of know. And I guess kids are reading Shakespeare Mm -hmm. because they're reading it in school. So it's stuff that would be familiar to them in a fun way. What do they do with them in school? I remember we did Romeo and Juliet, which I know a lot of schools don't do anymore. I taught Macbeth to sophomores. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think what's interesting about the fact that so many of these, like, 90s early 2000s movies were doing retellings of you know things we consider like mm-hmm. canon classics yeah. is that like you look at she's the man or 10 things i hate about you or all of these things and people think oh these are like teen girl movies and, they're really and it's not. one of those things they're always it's always a shakespeare retelling it's always a some i mean i do not need another pride and prejudice retelling ever 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 because mm. at this point they're all boring mm. Mm. but <laughs> that's one I can get behind sometimes. <sighs> There's so well, many boring ones. I think Pride and Prejudice is comforting. So I think people don't mind if it's boring. Either. Pride and Prejudice yeah. to me is an unspecific enough story that it's like, okay, enemies to lovers. It's trope, OG right? enemies it's the, to lovers. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that one to me bothers me. And I'm not a big romance person by any stretch of the imagination, but a good rom-com that has that storyline. I feel like they're all kind of a nod to Jane Austen. So that one For doesn't sure. bother me as much as something that's like much more like specific, like, wow, yeah. like your story. I'm like that. I could not do that. If I like the original, I'd be like, I can't even pick this up. That's why I can't do the little women ones. Cause little women to me is. Sacred. Yeah, that I I don't know that I would want that. Although there are some really interesting retellings that I know of where like Joe is actually queer or yeah. stuff like that where I'm like that's what I'm interested in, like the critique mm-hmm. that was on that list. Um like taking or, a story and doing like a social like a modern social critique. Yeah, or yeah. like picking up on subtext that might have sure. been there originally um and turning it into main Take, text. My college um, professor would call that picking on picking up a kernel. And running with it. And it's true. You see this little like thing in the story and you just kind of, you go. And I think that's what was happening with those 90s teen movies with the retellings was there, you know, there was that wave of feminism was happening. Right. I don't Mm -hmm. know which one I can't remember, but one of them. (laughs) One of the waves. (laughs) A wave of feminism. One of of the waves. Was happening in the 90s. And I think, yeah, it was critiquing these, you know, that the creepy taming of the shrew part of the taming of the shrew. Um, and then she's all that. What was she's all that? I don't remember that. That's the one where oh, she when plays... she takes off her glasses and she's hot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that became that whole stupid joke of yeah. like the girl take, which is in scary movie. One of the scary movies where the girl takes her glasses off and takes her hair out of the bun, and she goes from being like this nerd to this like 
prom queen. Yeah. So they were trying to kind of like ferret out the empowerment, women's yeah. empowerment. I feel like not always successfully. Stories. Yeah. With like the, what I was saying with the like, we look at these as like, oh, a teen girl movie is kind of thing. Like, you know, and the things that teen girls like is always criticized. Uh, but I feel like even just the making of them themselves was the critique beyond even the content mm. of them. It was like, we are going to take this white male British thing and cast Julia Stiles. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> that yeah. kind of, um, you know, just the, the act itself is the act of empowerment mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. Yeah. Julia Stiles is going to be a Shakespearean actor. <laughs> Deal with it. It was a, that was a great movie. And I feel like the principal writing the romance novel was my favorite part. Oh, or, no, it's the counselor. Oh, she's the counselor? Yeah, that's oh. why it's funny because it's like, what the hell? So I read this article where they were talking about things to look for in the background of that movie. And one of the things is if you look at the wall behind her, there's all these like, um, I don't know if they're awards or they're like covers of romance books. And they did a still shot from the movie. And I'm like, okay, now I need to go back and rewatch this again. <laughs> yeah. So apparently watch party at my house this time. I'll remember it, <laughs> Olivia. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's interesting too that there was this idea in the 90s of that sort of typical Julia Stiles, Janine Garofalo, Gen X queen sort mm-hmm. of tough girl. And Love it. Uh, it fits perfectly as like a, they're like, okay, we want to write a, you know, a story about this girl and what she means in our modern context. It would be like, oh, it doesn't make you think that like nothing has really changed that much, that this girl has always really existed and she just gets varying degrees of, publicity and mm-hmm. media and culture and mm-hmm. <laughs> good one all right so the one i'm talking about we already kind of talked about little women retellings hey. but the little women retelling that i brought for us today is hello beautiful by Anne napolitano this was a novel that was written in 2023 um just march of last year it is a family story set in the 80s in chicago about four sisters and their relationships and the way that they progress through life. That's really all you have to know about the plot. Uh, It made me think of a few things. First of all, that if you're going to write a novel about four sisters, you probably are going to have to nod to Little Women at some point. I grew up with three sisters, and Little Women loomed large in our lives. Which were were you? That's the, and that's the question, right? It, that's always Nobody the question. Nobody wants to be Beth. Let's be honest. It's Nobody does. Now. But all of us are a little bit Beth. And that's the <laughs> the four sisters in, in Hello Beautiful have read Little Women. They talk about Little Women and they mm-hmm. talk about which one they are because mm-hmm. that was like the point. Um, and it turns out, throughout, but none of them are a one-to-one. So this is not a scene-by-scene retelling of the original novel. It's an homage to the novel. So you have four sisters their lives are nothing like the lives in Little Women. There's no war. I was really glad they didn't try to like shoehorn that theme in there because it was so important to the Alcott story. But And I was thinking about, so we're reading Babysitter's Club too for a future mm-hmm. podcast. And I was thinking about how common it is to have four female leads in mm-hmm. a story. There's Sex in the City, Pretty Little Liars. Um, I even kind of included Pride and Prejudice because Mary is just like a 0.5. Like a lot of them have like a 4.5. <laughs> Poor Mary. Women. She really is though. <laughs> even like Vote Pretty Little Liars. Vote her off the She's island. like kind of there, but she's like. 
Um, and She's also Kitty piano Annie. in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> She's talking everyone. about Jesus and everyone's trying to block her out and be like, come on, that's too much now. And we're not, we're just <laughs> trying to party. Um, and so I think it's really common. And what the book does, which I think is really interesting is challenges this, like, which one are you idea mm-hmm. that like, you can't really be just one category, mm-hmm. this sort of like Buzzfeed, A, B, C, D, which one, you know, mostly A's, mm-hmm. mostly B's kid, you know, girl magazine quiz. <laughs> That we all are just sort of complicated versions. Tropes are real, but people are not tropes. Yeah. But it's sometimes comfort. Like you want it, to, right. to be. That's why. I mean, my friends in college and I, we all like did a big rewatch of Sex in the City. And of course we were all like, oh, you're blah, blah, blah. You're, and they tried to tell me I was Samantha. And I was like, I'm not Samantha. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, no, she's cool. It's like, Okay. It's the whole American girl phenomenon too. Yeah. It's just because women are so deprived of women's stories for so long that we just want so badly to see ourselves represented (laughs) accurately. So it's a really beautiful novel. I think it got sisters right for the most part. There were some parts of it where I, you know, I was like, no, that would never happen. Like, there's no way you would just never like spoiler alert, you would never choose a man over your sisters. There's no man that you would mm. ever like enough. If you have like good sister relationships. Okay. Like I, really to cl- say, okay. I have friends that have a hundred percent on that. Let me say it again. So I think it got close sibling sisterhood really okay. right. I okay. think um, it was dead on about some of the, the um, like oldest child dynamics and what it's like to be an oldest child and how that influences you throughout your life. And, um, just a, a lot of the sort of birth order stuff I thought was really well done. And if you just like family stories, I think you'll like this. It was just kind of like realistic fiction with this other story looming over it. I, it didn't provide a framework for the narrative at all. I think it just sort of acknowledged the fact that when you grow up in a house full of sisters, this is a book that's important to you and sort of shapes your relationships and how you think mm. about what your life is going to be when you're young. All right, so these are some great retellings. Is there anything else we want to talk about about retellings? Oh, I wanted to give some uh, four books in case people want to read some retellings. Um, besides yours, of course, because you you guys did books. I did a movie. Um, Demon Copperhead is a book that came out last year. It's the by the wonderful Barbara King solver. It's loosely based uh, retelling of David Copperfield, um, except this takes place in Kentucky. Sure. In the south somewhere. I want to feel like it's like Appalachia area. Sounds and right. it kind of looks at the the familial destruction caused by um, sort of the drug epidemic. Not sort of, by the drug epidemic. So it's very different from David Copperfield in some respects. So um, much more contemporary for us here in the United States. Uh, Boy, Snow, Bird by Helen Oyemi, which is kind of a retelling of Snow White. Um I was thinking about Aisha at Last by Uzma Jalaluddin. It was sort of a Muslim spin on Pride and Prejudice, so something more diverse and interesting. I believe I read that the year it came out was very good. And going back to Little Women, because shout out to Little Women, it's one of my favorite books, March by Geraldine Brooks. Did you read that book? I never read that one. It's like a modern classic. It comes up on a lot of freaking reading lists. I think I'm just going to have to suck it up, Buttercup, and read it this year. (sighs) So that's all I got. Um, I was just thinking a little bit, like as we were talking about that, the idea of the retelling that's kind of just for fun, which I think mm-hmm. Haunting on the Hill is versus the ones that are really going for a new framing. Um, and I was thinking about some of my favorite retellings, which are Madeline Miller's um, 
like Greek mythology books, oh, like Circe yeah. and Song of Achilles. Because, yeah. um, you know, those are kind of the ones that you really think of now. And I love those books so much. And I think that there's been a really huge um, uptick in Greek mythology retelling yeah. since she kind of came to fame. They are both fun because, you know, people just love Greek mythology. But it's, you know, l- looking at mythology in a new way, just the like what it tells us about our history and then also how it's informed modern prejudices. And like Mm -hmm. when we think of Circe as the character that she originally is in the Odyssey Mm -hmm. and, you know, this evil witch who's turning men into pigs versus this really nuanced and multifaceted character that you see in Madeline Miller's version. And I think those are the kind of retellings that I typically lean towards because they are so... Like, you come away from them with a new appreciation for the way that mythologies have lasted and how mm-hmm. they have both buoyed and damaged a lot of our modern understandings of everything, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those books are great. Um, and before we end, I just had a couple more um, book recommendations from my uh, retellings shelf on Goodreads yeah. um, that I unfortunately think are a lot better than A Haunting on the Hill. The Weight of Blood by Tiffany D. Jackson is a, quote, remix of Carrie. It is the a basically a beat-for-beat beat retelling of Carrie, but also using the real-life story of the high school in Georgia in 2014 who had their first-ever integrated prom in 2014. <laughs> um okay. So it's inspired by that as well. So it is Carrie with racial politics and all of that and the twists that she does on the Carrie things like the blood and all of this stuff are so, so brilliant. If you are into Poe as well and you like Fall of the House of Usher, Mm -hmm. uh, Mindy McGinnis's uh, The Initial Insult uh, duology is basically the same thing as Usher. You're using a bunch of Poe devices and just a really fun horror retelling. And the last one is All's Well by Mona Awad, who Mm. wrote Bunny, who she just writes unhinged, beautiful, Mm -hmm. amazing things. It is my favorite Shakespeare retelling, where it's a sneaky double retelling of All's Well That Ends Well and Macbeth. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of layers. There are so many layers. Mm. (laughs) What was that again? All's well. Oh, all's well, right. All right, I'll throw one more in there before we wrap up. Um, Where the Wild Ladies Are by Aoko Matsuda. These are a collection of retellings of traditional Japanese folktales. So I wasn't familiar with any of the folktales when I read the book, but I didn't really need to, and I felt like I learned a little bit about traditional Japanese folktales, and the stories are great. Very cool. This was an interesting episode. I liked it a lot. I like you guys a lot. Boop, boop. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Books We Loved, a podcast through the Troy Public Library. You can find more information about the books and library services we mentioned in the show on our website at troypl.org slash podcast. If you would like to suggest a topic for future discussion, please email us at podcast at troypl.org. Thank you for listening and happy reading.